0: Socio political issues. One man searches for intelligent conversation from Dedham, Massachusetts, the birthplace of modern democracy. This is You Don't Have to Yell with your host, Dan Sally.
1: Welcome, one, welcome, all, to episode 25, the fourth installment in our series on the national debt, and the first episode where I feel I finally understand 100% of what I'm talking about. I guess that's what happens when you start the month with modern monetary theory. But moving on, we've learned this month that what we currently demand from the U.S. government in terms of services will require us to carry some amount of debt to finance, that the U.S., who's in the enviable position of holding the world's reserve currency, can't involuntarily default on its debt because it pays the debt back in money it prints. And the powers such as Great Britain have actually done themselves harm by choosing austerity measures to pay down their debt rather than investing in the future. So we just keep printing money and everything's fine, right? Kind of, sort of, not really. See, like a python digesting a gazelle. (laughs) the best analogy I could do. The U.S. population has a demographic bubble that's heading closer and closer to retirement. So you get the gazelle, the python eats the gazelle and it moves down to whatever. So at any rate, we're going to need to shell out lots and lots of money to meet our obligations. And that means the amount we need to borrow to invest for the future could potentially trigger levels of inflation that could hurt us in the long run. Tara Sinclair, Associate Professor of Economics and International Affairs at George Washington University, joins me to discuss this and also permits me to use her deep, deep understanding of economics to validate an analogy I had comparing the Fed to how I got free Chinese food at comedy clubs years back. It will make sense later in the episode. Listen on the the funny thing about about this the the conversations i've been having so far this month have been you know i think if you look at the conventional view of debt right the mm-hmm. the view of like any anyone off the street it's generally they, they view it sort of like household debt right. where uh where it's like more debt is bad less debt is good therefore the us government or a government a state wants to carry little to no debt right right and and what i'm learning in these conversations, I am having is that it doesn't quite work that way because there is a certain. It, it, it seems to me that you know, at the points when the U.S. federal government was at its lowest in terms of debt, uh, they also <laughs> provided uh, the least to the population, mm-hmm. and and now as we've as we've started to grow, or as our expectations of what we want out of the government have started to grow. Uh, so is our spending. And with that comes a certain amount of debt. So, mm-hmm. um, so, I, you know, it, 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 it seems to me, again, like that whole, that whole viewing of the of the government as a, as a household is really kind of skewed, right? Because right. Yeah.
0: Yeah, I mean there's yeah. a, there's there's a couple of different angles to where using the household analogy doesn't work when talking about the government. The first one is that at some point we expect to to pass away and although we might care about what burden we might be leaving to children and grandchildren or what assets we might be leaving to future generations. It's not quite the same and the the laws around debt are not quite the same for households as they are for a government where we expect it to live forever. Um, mm-hmm. And so that that's the first thing that that makes it different. Um, and then for the US in particular our government is particularly well poised to be able to take on debt and almost to need to take on debt for the global financial system to work. Everybody wants to hold US government debt as a safe asset. And so if they stopped providing that, if they provide if they paid all of that down, there would be a lot of different financial structures we'd have to rethink.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And can you explain that part? Because I kind of understand it, but <laughs> probably not well enough to teach people about it. So could you explain that for for the folks who are listening?
0: Sure. Well, it, okay. and it's really complicated. So I'm going to um, skip over some of the intricacies here. That's uh, great. But, <laughs> yes. Uh, <laughs> but basically, you know, when we think about how um, it, for, for, for a couple of reasons, the you know, U.S. dollar and U.S. debt in particular is special, First of all, just in general, the US government is considered to be uh, very trustworthy to pay back their debt. And so um, that means that it's a nice place to, if you buy a treasury bond, you. Trust that you are. When it matures, you're going to get your money back with interest, and so that's a nice savings vehicle. You know, we all picture like uh, back in the day when grandparents used to buy their grandchildren savings bonds and that mm-hmm. sort of thing. Um, and and that's why they, you know, that's a nice safe asset. There's no risk. Like if you buy stocks, you know, the, the value of it can go up and down. Uh, the government bonds are considered the least likely. To be defaulted upon upon any you know any other form of debt you know because we could also buy corporate bonds or something like that but there's always some risk the company will go out of business we're not mm-hmm. expecting the U S government to go out of business mm-hmm. um, and so you know, that's something that that makes it a very nice safe asset and so um, a lot of different organizations um, you know private investors um, pension funds uh, they particularly target to have a percentage of their holdings in these safe assets. Uh, And so it gives people a a sense of security in their savings.
2: Mm
0: -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, And then the U.S. dollar in particular is valuable on the international stage because that's how so many different international products are priced. Um, You know, it really starts thinking about oil being priced in dollars per barrel Uh, But a lot of international transactions are done in U.S. dollars. And so, um, you know, that additional interest in U.S. currency also connects into wanting to hold U.S. government debt because then that's very easy to trade for U.S. dollars.
1: Mm -hmm. So, you know, for example, if I'm India, let's say, and I have my choice between keeping money in rupees or keeping money in dollars, Because an asset like again like oil, a commodity Mm -hmm. like oil that I'd want to purchase is priced in dollars. I'd rather have a a a stash of dollars there so I can insulate myself from the exchange rate difference. Is that exactly
0: exactly? Yeah. And and also, I mean, they they might want to be holding that if if their other alternative is to be holding. um, you know, either Indian currency or Indian government debt, there might be mm-hmm. a greater concern of default on either one of those, either because you know, some portion of the debt might not be paid back or because uh, there might be more inflation on, on the currency, which is also somewhat a form of you know, it losing value, which is associated somewhat with a small form of default
1: okay I'm glad you brought that up I before I get to my next point I do want to state that all month I've been talking like I understood why people need to hold on to US dollars and now <laughs> I, I finally know right so uh, so that's good that's good <laughs> I no longer have to operate as a fraud um, then that you, you actually so so the the thing that I find really interesting though about what you just said is that when especially when we talk about modern examples of debt going wrong mm-hmm. you know, one Big example that stands out is Greece, you know, right. which, uh, which obviously they they were in a financial crisis based on their own debt. But the one thing mm. they or the one problem they had that we don't is that they're not the issuer of their own currency, so they don't have a lot of control over uh, over the the value of their debt, effectively. Um, and and so obviously, if you're a country like Greece, that's a problem for you, not a problem right. for us. But I guess what are the perils of being a country that can sort of print your way out of debt in a way like the U.S.
0: Well, I mean it depends on who you ask as to whether there's any peril at all. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know the, the standard economic models suggest that you know that that might create an incentive for uh, too much inflation in times when the government might be wanting to you um, know, satisfy the expenditure demands of their constituents, mm-hmm. but not increase taxes. Yeah, And so, you know, there's that pressure. And that, so that's why in the U.S. we have the independent central bank in the form of the Federal Reserve mm-hmm. in order to make decisions about how much money to supply to have separate mm-hmm. from um, it, Congress who might, particularly in election years, want to be able to provide a little bit more services without any more taxes
2: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: Um, or pay down some debt so that the books look better. Um, you know, there, there's all sorts of incentives um, that suggests, you know that long ago when, um, you know, in the early, you know, 1913 or so when Federal Reserve was being set up, that was one of the things that was really Carefully thought about is that we needed to have this independent authority so that there wasn't this incentive to just uh, print money all the time to pay off the debt. Uh, because when you print money to pay off the debt, you might be like, well, that sounds okay, <laughs> uh, except that that's what I call a sneaky tax. Because yeah. what ends up happening is it, it causes inflation eventually. Yeah. And um, then people's savings that they are holding. In dollars, you know, everybody's checking accounts that don't pay interest and everything like that mm-hmm. lose value, and so it sneakily taxes everybody. So it might be a way to get that get past um, the initial viewing of it being a tax, but eventually it hurts people.
1: Yeah, and obviously, I think the Fed has has taken. <sighs> Has, has maybe maybe taken on some criticism in recent years. And and maybe in a lot of cases, people have regarded it with suspicion in terms of, mm-hmm. of how good it's doing or how good of a job it's doing as a neutral body. How, how do you mm-hmm. feel about how they're doing overall?
0: Well, what's interesting is that, you know, for the longest time, um, you know, we were really concerned to make sure that the Fed was sufficiently concerned about inflation and that really the the worry was, were they going to keep inflation low enough? Mm -hmm. Uh, But in recent years, they haven't been able to to reach their target. They've actually been below their 2% inflation target. Mm -hmm. And so uh, a lot of people are saying that they they're, they're missing their mandate from below Mm -hmm. now. Um, and that there would be room and, and value, um, to lots of people to have them figure out a way to get a little bit more inflation in there, um, which probably, you know, comes from finding a way to get more money in in circulation.
1: So, so in a lot of ways, and, and correct me if I'm, thinking about this the wrong way, but in a lot of ways we might benefit from issuing more treasuries effectively taking on more debt. Am I, am I hearing you correctly or?
0: Well, so, so these things are related, but they're, but they're different. Um, So the federal reserve is getting dollars in circulation. Got it. uh, And, and the way that they do that is by um, buying treasuries in the secondary market.
2: Ah, Uh, So that's
0: different than um, the government, creating more treasury debt in the primary market. Uh, so, so it's, you know, it, I often think about it like a, a consignment clothing store, you know, we, we don't necessarily want them to make more, um, new debt. Mm -hmm. Um, but rather you, the, the secondhand debt that the fed could buy more of that and trade for dollars.
1: Okay. Okay, so I'm sorry for making you take me take me to remedial uh, economic <laughs> school here, but I'll, I'll- oh
0: no, this it's it's important stuff, and it's uh it's confusing and complicated, and um you know, sometimes people's like natural analogies break down um, but then it makes it very hard for the public to understand what's going on.
1: You know, it's funny. So I'm just thinking, and this has very little to do with our topic, but years ago I was a stand-up comedian. That's kind of my mm. my my background from from a while back. And mm-hmm. there was this one club owner, uh Dick Doherty, who is probably gonna hear this and probably going to call me and cuss <laughs> me out for this story, but I'm gonna say it anyway. <laughs> so this guy, this guy Dick Doherty, had a series of clubs and he was notorious for not paying comics. And then eventually, what happens? he started paying on time, but he started paying people in quote unquote dicks bucks which were <laughs> which were effectively like gift certificates that you could redeem for uh like Chinese food at the places where his clubs were uh, at the places where he we where he had his shows and mm, so mm-hmm. and so at any rate, what ended up happening is these people got all these dick bu- dicks bucks stashed away. And they could never do anything with them, so they started trading them with each other. Uh, you know, they started trading them with each other whenever they were headed mm-hmm. up there, just so they could get a free meal. But because people had mm-hmm. so many, so many of them, we gradually saw Dick's Bucks rendered worthless due to inflation. So,
2: mm, uh, yeah. Exactly. So
1: I don't know. So, so now if we're gonna if we're gonna use if we're gonna kind of like let's say Dick Doherty decides, well, I really need to control the value of Dix Bucks, then what mm-hmm. he would do is he would have an independent Dick Doherty Federal Reserve, right? that right. would that would go out there and let's say take some of those dix bucks out of circulation when inflation was too high and if mm-hmm. inflation was too low the the dix bucks federal reserve would go and kind of sell them back in is that correct
0: right okay. and so i mean the the tricky thing is that of course um, if the dix bucks federal reserve doesn't have a clear mandate to focus only on the value of the Dick's box. Mm-hmm. Uh, you could imagine that maybe this Dick's Bucks federal reserve is a friend of Dick. Mm. And so he might come and say to them like, Hey, I'm kind of strapped this month and I really need to pay some extra comedians. Can you please just put a little bit more of the Dick's Bucks in, in the economy? You know, they probably won't notice right away that it's costing a few more Dick's bucks to get a Chinese meal. Yeah. And this will kind of help me smooth over the months. Yeah. Uh, And if they, they keep doing that, then we end up with these economies that have really struggled to keep inflation low.
1: Got it. Got it. Okay. So Dick Doherty, if you're out there, you've done an invaluable, you've, you've, (laughs) you've been an invaluable resource for this conversation. Um, okay so so keeping the understanding that right now you know the us government we have these mecha- we have these mechanisms for keeping inflation at bay and keeping hyperinflation at bay uh, mm-hmm. you know that that makes us treasuries very valuable or very trustworthy because you know uh the that a government isn't someday going to nefariously decide to print tons and tons of money to pay for hmm programs and then leave their debtors uh you leave their debtors holding the bill effectively. Mm-hmm. Uh, right. Or leave their what's the word? Debties. Is that a word? I think so. Leave <laughs> the people who own the own the debt holding the bill. Right, uh, right. But, the debt owners. Okay, the debt owners. The debt owners. So so it sounds like we're we're on pretty solid footing there. Um now you know I guess the 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 I guess the next question I have to ask then is like you know, right now we're at a ratio of about you know, 105% debt to GDP. And mm-hmm. it, like when do we need to worry then?
0: Uh, that is a hotly debated mm-hmm. question in the economic literature. Um, and so it it really ranges. You, there's definitely the group that says particularly for the US, there might not be any debt-to-GDP ratio that is too high. We might be able to get away with any amount. Mm -hmm. Other people look at Japan and say that we can at least have as much as Japan. Mm -hmm. Um, Other people say that at any moment, even at 105%, we could suddenly become um, you know, a pariah to the credit community, and people might suddenly decide that our debt is too risky and stop buying the debt.
2: Mm-hmm. Uh,
0: so you know, there's, there's a wide range of, of views on whether it's too high already
2: mm-hmm.
0: or not. Um, but generally, lower debt is better. Mm-hmm. Um, so one term that uh, some researchers have used, um, Christina and David Romer, call it fiscal space. So the idea is that if we have a lower debt to GDP ratio, then there's just more room to do things if a crisis or emergency arises. And I think here the household analogy works, Mm -hmm. right? So if you have room on your credit card to borrow a little extra money in an emergency, that's better than if your credit cards are already maxed out.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, the tricky thing with the government debt is that, as we were just discussing, we don't actually know what maxed out looks like. And maxed out in some way, rather than having like a credit card company that tells us what our max is on our credit card, this is a variable rate that's determined by the views of international creditors of the trustworthiness of the US government. Right now, that view is very good,
1: mm-hmm.
0: but they could change their minds.
1: Yeah. Well, and I think back to, I can't remember what year it was, but a few years back when the US credit rating was downgraded. And mm-hmm. the reason for that wasn't because of the debt we were taking on, it was because we couldn't agree on <laughs> whether we were going to pay it or not. And right. so it, it seems like when I look at you know all let's let's call it the fiscal threats to the United States it seems like the biggest mm-hmm. one out there right now is political dysfunction am i right there or am i off base
0: yeah well i think it's really interesting you know, when we think about the latest potential risk for why we might not pay back the debt it didn't have anything to do with any inability to pay on any of the debts that were coming due. It was on this artificial debt ceiling that had been set by Congress, where it's this crazy thing where they're the ones that are voting on the budget. Mm -hmm. And then they would say, oh, wait, we voted on this budget that's going to exceed our debt ceiling. So then the only thing we can do is either... shut down the government so that we're not having to make expenditures in that way and or potentially not pay back on some of our debt or not pay back on time. And that has always seemed pretty crazy because they could have just not voted on the budget package that they originally came up with. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it's, it's kind of like, you know, if, if you're the person who tells yourself you know how much money you can spend in a week and then you uh overspend and then say well you know I just you know I borrowed from a friend and I'm not going to pay them back because I overspent.
1: Yeah. Okay. <laughs> and
0: it, it was it was their choice in the first place to decide how much to spend and they could have avoided that whole problem by coming up with a budget that was feasible.
1: Got it. Got it. Or maybe you book a comedian and then you end up blowing all the money at the horse track <laughs> so you issue out a new currency to pay them that that kind of thing i'm really
2: yeah
1: I, i'm really uh, i'm really kind of opening up some old wounds here so yeah. uh, so uh, you know one thing i one thing that kind of popped into my head as as you know we were talking here too is like you, know, you mentioned that there's this argument that no debt to GDP ratio is too high, and people say we could have as much as Japan or we could have more. And mm-hmm. and also, you know, one of the things you mentioned is that there's this net need for debt, or there's this need, mm-hmm. I should say, to carry US dollars out there. And you know, if we if we look at the last 20, 30 years, there's been some substantial, like real economic growth. In the world. And you can point to, for example, China and India specifically, is could there be a case where, again, if things stay status quo, if everyone continues to look at the US dollar as the uh, safest and most reliable and a necessary investment, uh, is there an argument to be made that as the global economy continues to grow, so would that appetite for US dollars and by that, so would our borrowing power?
0: Yes, I think that is broadly true, although uh, one key thing we need to keep in mind is that the demographics are against us there in some mm-hmm. sense, where um, you know a lot of debt at the moment is being held by pension funds because they want a you know, nice, safe asset that they're going to need to draw down in the coming years because of the aging baby boomers. And as those aging baby boomers want to take their pensions, they're going to want to see these treasuries converted back into cash. Mm -hmm. And so that's going to be a pretty big demographic shift. And if there isn't a new group of people that wants to buy those treasuries in the same magnitudes, then things could shift uh, even if... Uh, there's still you know, broadly, you know, the potential for for increased global demand for for U.S. debt because it's it's just a question of is there as much global demand for debt? I mean, people have talked for a long time about uh, the savings glut, uh, where other countries are so keen to save and they want to save in safe assets, so they're putting more money in U.S. treasuries mm-hmm. than we would normally have predicted. In fact, you know, oftentimes. You know, we wonder why people don't put more money in you know, slightly higher risk, but higher return options. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, and, and again, those preferences could shift and they could definitely shift with demographics. Like, you know, we often say that younger people uh, have the number of years in order to take on a little bit more risk to get mm-hmm. that higher return. Yeah, And so there might not be people that want to immediately come in and buy these very safe assets, they might rather take their money and put it in the stock market.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And you know, it's, it's interesting to you bring up the pensions because, you know, as I was preparing for our our conversation, you know, one of the things I did was I, I looked at just a number of countries with relatively high debt to GDP ratios. Mm -hmm. And I looked at the demographic data and all of them, uh, have this rising uh, population of people 65 and older and yeah. a and a decreasing population of people between the you know 15 to 64 age bracket from a percentage mm-hmm. standpoint and I, I guess to what extent are these retirement costs sort of exacerbating the issue of of sovereign debt worldwide but you know we can also focus on the US as well there
0: yeah, well, and this is a huge issue and it has, uh, it has several contributing factors. So the, the big contributing factor, and this is really important to, to talk about when we're talking about uh, growing U.S. debt, mm-hmm. is that uh, we, we really are looking at continued growth in U.S. debt because of the aging baby boomers wanting to take their entitlements, namely Social Security, but even more so, Medicare benefits. Um, We really don't have a plan for paying for all the people who are going to be demanding substantial expenditures from Medicare in the coming years. Mm -hmm. Um, This has been something that the Congressional Budget Office has been warning about for a very long time, that uh, it's just a matter of time now until we kind of hit this point where you know, our, our debt's just going to keep galloping along because we have no other plan for how to pay for Medicare, um, and so that's that's one contributing factor is the expenditure side, and so that's pushing up um, those those costs to the government. And then on the other side, you can imagine that this older group of people they go, they vote, and they vote for low taxes. Mm-hmm. Um, So, you know, you can imagine easily that the idea of rolling over the responsibility of paying for some of these Mm -hmm. entitlements onto future generations sounds very appealing Mm -hmm. to people who aren't expecting to be here in future generations.
1: So just, just to make sure I understand you correctly, a potential scenario is people 65 and older could potentially vote for candidates who want to cut taxes. Is that right? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And that could have potentially happened two years ago too. I'm, I'm imagining. Is that fair, or am I, am I off base?
0: I so I haven't looked. I, I don't that want to totally politicize Yeah, <laughs> no, but I anyway, but that's, yeah. that's you know, in theory, that's a thing that sounds very plausible and sounds like a political challenge to being able to get debt under control.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, we we have. It's funny. We have the 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 same thing going on for example in my in my town to take a microcosm of it mm, where mm-hmm. you have and i'm i live j- just outside of boston uh and you know property prices now are fairly high and mm. so with that the property taxes keep going up and yeah. we have this situation where property values keep rising because a lot of the people like my parents who raised their kids uh, you know who who still live in the house they raised their kids in they don't want to move and so the inventory is low but then Mm -hmm. their their taxes go up and so there's a there's definitely a lot of a considerable amount of uh of griping on their side about the way the taxes keep going up, uh, mm-hmm. and and you know, of course, they don't necessarily have to worry so much about the future, or they're not necessarily as right. concerned with that. And right. and so, I guess you know, I don't want to pit old against young here, um, but do you know? Are there ways? Are you know? Are there ways to maybe satisfy both ends? So, are there ways to uh, you know honor? the promises that are, that were made to, uh, the folks who are entering retirement and at the same time, not necessarily, uh, not at the expense of the future.
0: Right. Well, so the big thing that, a lot of politicians are banking on is that we'll have a burst of productivity in the economy. So big technological advances that make it possible for us to produce a lot more stuff with a lot less effort. Mm
2: -hmm.
0: If if we can get those sorts of boosts to our economy, then everything becomes a lot more sustainable. That's really the big win-win is when we can get these productivity or technological advances in the economy. Mm-hmm. The unfortunate thing is that uh, we haven't seen that sort of growth lately. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it's, you know, kind of, it, you know, it takes money to make money. Yeah. Uh, you know, we've had many years of low interest rates, which is good for, for borrowing. At least, you know, it's been inexpensive, for the government to build up uh, debt over the last uh, decade or so.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, but at the same time, if you're going to borrow at these low interest rates, you want to invest in things that are going to pay off in big ways in the future that are going to enable these enhancements. And we haven't we haven't seen a lot of that lately. You know, economists, were, we're always talking about how we want more infrastructure investment because that's something that we see that it roads, um, you know, better cable wiring for internet access, for uh, you know, cell phone towers, like all of these things that make business more productive today. Mm-hmm. It, the government could potentially invest more in those directions and possibly get big payoffs. Uh, but there there hasn't been enough appetite to invest in those ways. And we're Seeing that, you know, on the one hand, we see these projections that, like, oh, we're going to be able to see four percent economic growth, uh, and to get that kind of growth, given the labor force growth that we have coming up mm-hmm. uh, because of all the the, uh, the demographic shifts, the only way to get to four percent growth is to have some pretty substantial advances, so that you know, potentially even a smaller labor force than what we have today could produce more output, and I, I, I want to be optimistic and say that that's coming, mm-hmm. but there isn't a ton of support for that right now.
1: Yeah. You know, the, the one thing that I saw too, in doing that, the, in, in looking into the data on the, the demographics of, of, uh, the developed world is I also looked at the places where the, where there's a, a much higher and growing younger population. And mm-hmm. if you look at you know, sub-Saharan Africa and Latin America, for example, you know, mm-hmm. those those are two areas where we see a very large uh, young population. Is there an argument to be made that immigration could potentially play a role in helping get us out of that?
0: Uh, oh, it could definitely yeah. help. I, it, mm-hmm. it, it could help on a, a number of... Of fronts. So, first of all, it could just to help grow our labor force, mm-hmm. which is important. So, we, you know, when we're talking about these different demographic groups, one term that often comes up is the dependency ratio. Yeah. So, when we think about you know, all the people who aren't working, whether they be young and in school or old and retired, they are their consumption is supported by people that are producing products, and so that's the the, the prime age working working age population. Mm -hmm. And so these dependency ratios have been going up where we've got um, more people depending on a smaller number of working people. Mm
2: -hmm.
0: Uh, And so if we could just increase the number of working people and bring in more uh, prime age workers into the population, that would definitely help. Uh, And there's also evidence that suggests that uh, you know, people that actively choose to immigrate might be more productive than a typical worker. And so they might actually bring productivity gains as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we, we might get both more workers and more output per worker, Okay, uh, which starts to get very exciting.
1: Okay. Okay. So it, it, it sounds then like there's, when we talk about those, you know, we talk about the expanding, uh the the expanding obligations we're going to have in terms of uh you know in terms of of paying benefits to to more and more people retiring uh, it mm-hmm. sounds like there there's one way to tackle that is just to get more younger workers. Um mm-hmm. you know, one of the things we didn't talk about was healthcare and healthcare inflation, because obviously that makes right. a that takes a pretty that, that that makes a pretty big dent in the whole picture. Uh, yes. is there any idea if we were to tackle that, does is that something that could have a serious impact on the rate of increase in our obligations? Or is that are we still just kind of nibbling around the edges when we look at that?
0: Oh, no, that's a big one. Because so that's so really, if we want to talk about what's unsustainable about the projected US government debt going forward, it's all about Medicare. Mm -hmm. And so that's really the area where we've got to find a way to get costs under control. Mm -hmm. And so if we can do that, that makes everything a lot easier.
1: Okay. Okay. So, so I guess, and again, just to kind of just to go over what we've discussed, mm-hmm. it, it sounds to me like right now we're, we're not necessarily in like red light territory when it comes to the debt. Maybe right. we're in like yellow light territory, let's say. Um, right. And it sounds like the big things we have to worry about is we have to worry about these rising obligations in terms of uh, the cost of retirees, as uh, cost of social security. Uh, we have to worry about underinvestment in other sectors. So infrastructure is a big one, mm-hmm. um, and I think I'd, I'd probably tack education onto that as well. Right. You yes, know, which is both of which are are, are lagging indicators. Uh, in terms of mm-hmm. future economic performance. And, and then, of course, you know, in terms of things we can do to alleviate some of that pressure or give us some breathing space to invest for the future as well, we have healthcare inflation and we have immigration, two things that could potentially uh, address the issue for the positive. Um, mm-hmm. I, I think the, the one aspect of the conversation maybe we haven't talked about and which definitely has a red light on it are taxes, because mm-hmm. there is zero appetite for taxes or zero appetite to increase taxes. And is there a, you know, it, if, we, if we have these two, uh, you know, obviously we have healthcare, inflation, and immigration. Those two mm-hmm. in and of themselves probably won't solve the problem. Is that fair? Right. Okay. That's fair. So then we're still going to need to either cut budgets, raise taxes, or both and based on our current budget based on where we are today is there one of the two that's better or is there kind of like a magic ratio of taxes to budget cuts we should be looking for
0: you know and unfortunately i with everything economic there doesn't ever seem to be a magic ratio or a a magic answer to any Mm -hmm. of these things they always mix together with politics right it's always about what's politically feasible to do uh so you might think about it, it at this point just stabilizing the debt so that just any new expenditure is paid for by taxes that would perhaps be the economic magic Mm -hmm. ratio. Mm -hmm. uh, But that's not something that's necessarily politically feasible. So here it it really does depend on the political choices of what expenditures the voters want Mm -hmm. and somehow figuring out how to get, some combination of taxes and debt that's that's feasible as well to pay for it and to tie those two things together in a way that uh, gets people elected yeah and and it's a political mess
1: oh yeah oh (laughs) it is a mess i think that the good news here and i try to keep things as as neutral and as bipartisan as i can i think Mm -hmm. the one thing we can all agree on is it's a total mess I think that is yes. that. That is without a doubt. Um, yes. I would say another thing we can probably all agree on, and I'm going to pontificate a bit here, Tara, so please <laughs> okay. forgive me, is that if you want something, you need to pay for it. Whether it's a flat screen TV or a Snickers bar or a functioning interstate highway system mm-hmm. or a plane that can fly from here to Korea in four hours, you need those all cost money. And so Mm -hmm. maybe, and again, I'm not, I'm not running for office, but what I would say is that I think every American can understand that if you really, really want something, you should probably get comfortable with the idea of paying for it in some way. And maybe a tax Mm -hmm. is the way we do that. And it's just how that's distributed. I'm off my soapbox now, but, (laughs) um, but so, so it's, so basically it sounds to me then like, like, the the issue your your concern really seems to be more around the deficit more around how much we add to the debt and, right. and yeah and it's and it it sounds to me like the things we need to do to really address that aren't politically palatable so the 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 likelihood of those getting done is going to be is, is relatively low
0: right and actually let me emphasize something here because so i am much more like stabilizing the debt i think even if it's stabilizing it at 105% of gdp or so <laughs> is, I, I think, a reasonable goal. I, I think thinking about reducing that at this stage, especially given what we're looking at in terms of future obligations, that's you know, really not feasible right now to talk about. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the idea that we've been in an economic expansion for over 10 years, mm-hmm. and we've been seeing deficits Rather than ideally surpluses or at least balanced budgets mm-hmm. is incredibly unusual. Mm-hmm. I, the The idea is that you know historically, uh, we've used deficits during recessions during crisis times in order to both offset some of that for the individuals being impacted by unemployment. By, you know losing income you know potentially by losing their housing mm-hmm. uh, and, you know and make their lives better but also to you know, stabilize the overall economy um, and, and when we look at what's been happening with the deficit lately if you showed a macro economist who had been on an island since 2006 mm-hmm. these numbers they would say like oh we've been in this horrible, recession since 2008
2: mm-hmm.
0: and then we tell them no actually we recovered from that recession 10 years ago
2: mm-hmm. it's
0: very confusing yes uh, and so that's something that and part of that it may be due to these demographic shifts but uh, uh, you know a lot of it is just the, the shifting political will uh, in, in terms of of taxes you know people have Voted for tax cuts rather than um, you stabilizing the budget.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And 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 there's no desired, regardless of which side of the aisle you fall on. There's there doesn't seem to be any desire to truly cut government expenditures. Even right. the even the biggest fiscal hawks uh, seem to have abandoned that. Um, mm-hmm. So I'm gonna I'm, I'm gonna I've got I've got three more. Three more questions for you, um, two of which are going to push you dangerously into prognostication territory. Um, But I'm going to start out with the first, which is the total black swan tinfoil hat conspiracy theory uh, (laughs) situation and not based in anything I've read, just based in something I'm thinking. Let's say tomorrow the entire world decides, you know what? we're all much better off doing our transactions in Bitcoin
2: Mm. and we're
1: just going to buy a bunch of Bitcoin. What does that do to the U S?
0: Well, um, in the sense that that might mean that the international holders Mm -hmm. of our debt don't want to hold it anymore because they don't want to switch it to dollars. Mm Um, you know, that could, really push the interest rates up that the government has to pay in order to, to get people to lend them money anymore.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, so, so there's that, although, I mean, the thing is, is with Bitcoin, Bitcoin still probably people are going to want to transact it. Um, in some way I bet you there's still going to be demand for, for treasuries even to connect to, to Bitcoin.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, um, so I, I can't even imagine it being that drastic, but I understand where you're trying to go with this. Yeah. Um, and, and so if, if people didn't want to hold dollars for international transactions and therefore didn't want to hold treasuries in order to be able to access dollars for international transactions, mm-hmm. there's still a lot of other reasons why people would still hold treasuries. So I think it would push interest rates up somewhat for the US government yeah but you know a lot of of treasuries are are held domestically like that's the the majority are held domestically so okay. it's it's still um you know u s pension funds uh and you know, individuals retirement accounts uh, and all the people that are still holding those treasury bills that uh, their grandparents got them
1: okay so the 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 worries of an impending dollar crisis are are probably unfounded then because you'd need to convince a lot of retirees no longer to hold dollars.
0: Yeah, I, th- okay. I I think we're we're far from from really any any threat from from Bitcoin or from an, another currency as well. I and mean, there there have been times when people have asked about uh, you know, so since Japan and China are the two largest holders mm-hmm. of U.S. debt, um, you know, the question is, what if uh, people started wanting to do transactions in in yen or in yuan and in it, it, in both cases, that that does not look like it's really on the horizon. But even mm-hmm. if it were, it it wouldn't it immediately take down the U.S. government or anything like that.
1: Okay, okay, good, good to hear. Yeah. So I don't have to worry about Bitcoin. <laughs> That's great. Right. Um, the uh, the the second th- question I have for you is: uh, so if the U.S. stays on the path it's on today, you know, what does that mean? Like what does that look like in ten years, twenty years, thirty years?
0: Yeah, I mean it we look like Japan is what <laughs> happens to to our debt. Um and that might not be that bad. Um uh, I mean people seem to still be doing fine in Japan. Mm-hmm. Um, so i mean and that it doesn't buy us their awesome train system though unfortunately
1: oh, uh, or the talking <laughs> toilets either that's the oh other my thing. goodness
0: yes yes <laughs> no, no so we don't look at japan on, on those fronts but Bummer. in terms of, of uh you know, debt to gdp ratios uh it, it could get a lot worse But we've seen other countries you know continue to be able to to maintain a you know, domestic life um with higher debt to GDP ratios, and so that might be, that might be what we do. And uh, I, I do kind of feel like it. It might be human in general. It might be uniquely American that um, we may need to have our hands slapped away from the cookie jar before we stop gaining debt.
1: Sure. Right. So you, so you think that the that the the most likely. Uh, the most likely impetus for change is going to be something uh, is going to be something drastic, then, or going to be something at right. least noticeable. Is that right?
0: Exactly, exactly. I mean, I think it's going to be when um, we actually see interest rates rise, mm-hmm. uh, and and that's and that's something we haven't really emphasized too much lately, in, in, in today's conversation, is that um, it, right now um, the government isn't having to pay too much. Uh, in terms of interest on the debt. Mm-hmm. Um, but now that they've got this larger amount of debt outstanding, when they roll it over, if they have to roll it over and pay a higher interest rate, that's going to really bite and you know bite into the budget that they're currently spending on other things. So even if they maintain the same debt-to-GDP ratio, if interest rates go up, then a larger proportion of the federal budget is going to go towards interest payments as compared to things that Americans actually value and enjoy mm-hmm. from government expenditure. And that's, that's going to hurt.
1: Okay. Okay. And that may, that brings me to the second question or the third that, that that brings me to the third question, which is, you know, maybe what is the, what is the worst case scenario look like? Like what should we really be worried about here?
0: Well, I mean, I, I, I think what we really worry about is, um, you know, a, a case where um, you know, the, the budget doesn't get under control and there is a big spike in interest rates. Mm-hmm. And when we find ourselves in a position where um, you know, to, to even just roll over the debt and definitely to take on any more debt means cutting critical, you know, Expenditures by the government, whether that be you know, d- depending on your, your political preferences, whether that be social safety net issues or defense or entitlements, um, you know, and you know, depending on what party is in power at that particular time, they're probably going to make decisions that suit their party, and we don't know which party that is going to be, and so that's that's scary. I think for for everyone, because I think different people have different pet things that they definitely don't want to be cut
1: mm-hmm. um,
0: and they're all potentially at risk.
1: Yeah. Well, you know, per usual, an hour is not enough time to, <laughs> to, to, go as deep into this as we'd like, but right. um, I, yeah, I mean, it give, I think it gives, gives me a lot to think about. I think it, will give the, gives the folks who are hearing this a lot to think about. And, um, and I'm also just grateful that I, Got to bring up Dick's Bucks in, uh, in a in, an acad- in, in a pseudo academic setting, so that was that was the real victory.
0: Yeah, um, no, well now that I've learned about Dick's Bucks, I mean that could take on a whole new life of its own in my lectures.
1: You listen, I'm I'm happy to give you a lesson <laughs> in, uh, in in the inflation in Dick's Doherty's comedy club as a uh, as a case study in it. Now we're in the final stretch of debt month and the feeling that I've got a grand piano resting on my chest is starting to wane just a little bit for two reasons. Number one, from my conversation with Tara, addressing healthcare costs seems to be a way we can also address the impending fiscal time bomb that is the baby boomers golden years. It might be a tough sell as when you have the highest per capita health spending in the developed world by thousands of dollars and a decreasing life expectancy, what's not to love? But it's a conversation we need to have. Second, immigration. We're back here, right back where we started. With the bulk of the world's young people living in Latin America and Sub-Saharan Africa, and many of them oddly enough still wanting to come here, we can offset the number of people leaving the workforce by adding younger new arrivals. Neither of the above is easy. Neither of the above is without controversy, but neither are any of the alternatives we have. Now, one thing we didn't talk about are taxes, and we're going to be tackling that later in the year. But for now, we're going to have to imagine that the political will doesn't exist to raise taxes. Very difficult challenge. I'm pretty sure you guys can pull it off. Now, next week, we've got the data monkey here to wrap it all up, so I hope you'll join me. Per usual music by feller tack you don't have to yell is produced by the big geno jason putney delivering his country fried goodness to me and you every week thank you for joining me until the next this is dan sally signing off